All right, well, if you peeked ahead in your bulletin, you will know that this morning we are beginning a new sermon series that's going to carry us over the course of the summer. And the title of this series is Eat Hearty, A Biblical Theology of Eating and Drinking. Now, eat hearty is a common enough phrase, but I will just confess a source of that for us. For my family, the phrase eat hearty comes from really a throwaway line in the movie uh, White Christmas, and it's become something that we just say in our family at various points, and we all know what we are referencing, but it made sense to call this summer series by that title. So Eat Hardy, A Biblical Theology of Eating and Drinking, and this will be the third series in a collection of sermons that we've done now over the past, well, this will be the third summer in a row, on biblical theology. So if you were with us two years ago, we began this collection of sermons with a series that was called Clothed in Christ, a Biblical Theology of Clothing, where we kind of traced uh, from the very beginning to the book of Revelation what the Word of God has to say about clothing. And then last summer, if you were with us and recall it, the title of that series was There's a Place for Us. And it was a biblical theology of place, looking at how God had created Eden and then a promised land and then the new heavens and the new earth. I tried in the structure of the service today to include things that would kind of remind you of those series that have been over the past couple of summers. For example, uh, the confession, that prayer from the Valley of Vision uh, was obviously about being clothed in Christ and the best robe that the Lord continues to bring out to us. And uh, the call to worship this morning was from Psalm 104, and Psalm 104 really ties together those two series. It begins with God clothing himself, God clothed in righteousness and glory and honor, goes on to the place that he had prepared for his people, and then speaks about all the way that he feeds and cares for all of creation and all of the earth. I think it would be helpful, once again, to remind ourselves of what we're doing in this series and why we are doing this. On the one hand, we could simply say this. We could simply say that when you open up your Bible and you look at it, you realize that the Bible has a lot to say about eating and drinking. And that in and of itself would be reason enough to say, all right, well, let's spend some time considering what the Bible has to say about it. And that's good and that's fine, but we can say more than that. Now, for those of you, uh, for, well, for all of us uh, in one sense, but for those of you who are visiting with us or new to the church, it's worth saying that the normal diet of our congregation, the normal spiritual diet and the ministry of the Word of God, especially in the context of the people of God gathered for worship, is where we look at Scripture and we look at it, if you will, a book at a time and a chapter at a time or even a section at a time and work our way through what a passage has to say, what it says about God, what it commands to us as the people of God, and we consider it in its setting and then in the broader context of all of the Bible. 
And that's as it should be. That's kind of meat and potatoes stuff, if you will. It's good, and that should be our foundation. We also sometimes consider a particular theme that is expressed in the Bible, and we look how across the Bible that theme is developed, that topic is developed, and we try to understand that topic in particular. This, for example, would be the approach of, say, the Westminster Confession or any of the uh, creeds and standards that are out there. Basically, the idea is you take something, Westminster, for example, and you consider creation, you consider the Trinity, you consider God's covenant and other themes like that, and you come to a synthesis of what the Bible says or you systematize what the Bible says about that topic. That's called systematic theology. And then there's what we are doing in this series and in the past two that we have done. We're looking at the scriptures, and there's not a good way with my Bible to, to visualize this, but we're looking at it lengthwise. Okay, we're looking at the scriptures longitudinally. We're looking at the scriptures over the course of time, over the axis of time, and we're taping, taking a topic and seeing how it begins and how it unpacks as it moves throughout Scripture, as it moves throughout the history of God's revelation to his people. That is biblical theology. Now, the term biblical theology, I did not invent the term biblical theology as a technical discipline. Perhaps that term is too general because it shouldn't be understood that in some way systematic theology isn't biblical theology or working through passages of scripture in a book is not biblical theology, it certainly is. But anyway, when you look at this line going through time and how things are developed, as a discipline, it's called biblical theology. Last year, when I was introducing the uh, series for the summer, I described it this way. I said, it's kind of like the courses in a fine meal that are prepared by a very attentive chef. And what that chef is trying to do is make each course unique, but allow them also at the same time to be connected with one another, so that they build one upon the other until you get to the piece de resistance, whatever the main thing is in that particular meal. But when we're talking about biblical theology, when we're tracing the line of how something is developed, the piece de resistance is always Christ. It is always Jesus himself. And in context of uh, this sermon series this summer, Jesus who is the bread of life. Jesus who is the one who gives to his people living water, in whom, by whom, and through whom all things were made. So that's kind of what we're doing this summer. That's our theme, eating and drinking. It starts in the very beginning of the Bible, as we clearly see, and continues all the way through, and we want to see how that shows to us the magnificence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what it means for us as the people of God. Now, with that said, I know that's an extended introduction to it, and that's what kind of today is, but with that said, I'm going to read for uh, you now the passage that is printed in your bulletin from Luke chapter 7. By way of context... By way of context, Jesus is addressing the issue that has been raised in terms of who is John the Baptist and why did people go out to see John the Baptist. And as he is doing that, he is also making reference to himself because 
his identity is linked to the identity of John the Baptist. So we're really picking up a discussion that has already been in progress here, but that's okay for our purposes today. This is the Word of God. I'm going to read uh, 31 to 36. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we give you thanks for the banquet of your word that you have set before us, and we pray that upon that word, which is to us sweeter than life, we pray that you would give rest to our souls, give instruction to us, so that we can follow after you, our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus ate and drank. He was the bread of life. He is the wellspring of living water. And he himself ate and drank. On the cross, he thirsted. And on the first evening of his resurrection, when he appeared to the disciples in the upper room, at one point, soon after his appearance, he said this thing that every parent has heard. Do you have anything here to eat? And he ate with his disciples that evening. He ate with his disciples, as we see in what I've just read for us, he ate, he dined with Pharisees, and he ate with what are called, collectively, tax collectors and sinners. In the common words of Scripture, and they're in this section that I read for us just now, and many others as well, he reclined at table with them. You may imagine Jesus, and when you think of Jesus, you think of Jesus working particular miracles or teaching people in various settings. But in addition to those things, Jesus spent time reclining at table and eating and drinking with all sorts of people, as we can see even in a text like this. It's so common. It's so ordinary. It is so everyday that it might escape our notice. We might look at it and say, oh, that's just incidental. It's not really part of who he was. Yes, it, it took place, but it's incidental. There's nothing significant about eating and drinking as it relates to Jesus. It did not, though, escape the notice of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who were 
watching Jesus. They were concerned about with whom Jesus was eating and drinking, about how much he was eating, about what he was drinking, and how much of that exactly was he drinking. People are fickle. People love to find fault. And people are prone to misunderstand and misattribute reasons for things. And Jesus calls them out here. He calls them out. In effect, what he says is it's hard to win with you guys. It's hard to win. You're condemned if you do. And you're condemned if you don't with you. John the Baptist didn't, right? John the Baptist didn't. Let's take it in parts according to the structure of the last three summers. John didn't wear normal clothes, did he? He didn't wear what everybody else wore. He wore camel's hair and belt around him. Don't think nice camel jacket or anything like that. He wore camel's hair with a belt around him, and it was odd. And he didn't live where other people lived. John didn't live in a nice place in town. He was out in the wilderness somewhere. And, and he didn't eat like other people, right? John ate locusts and, and honey and things like that, but it wasn't normal. And, and so John didn't eat and drink in the way other people did. And Jesus says, with respect to John, you say he has a demon, okay? So John has a demon. Jesus did. John didn't. Jesus did. Jesus did eat and drink like other people ate and drank. And of course, the accusations on the other side are quick to come. They accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus here is pointing out their lack of wisdom, their lack of understanding, their lack of discernment and he's using eating and drinking as the case study. It's the object lesson that's in front of them. It is the evidence of their confusion. All right, let's step back. The Word of God has much to say about eating and drinking. In my Bible, from page 1 or maybe page 2 to page 1573, that would be Revelation 22, if you're keeping track, eating and drinking are there. From the first fruit-bearing trees and plants that are given as food to the tree of life in the New Jerusalem, and the nearly final words of the Bible, almost the final words in your Bible are these, that anyone who is thirsty come and take of the water of life without price. From famines, to feasts, from Passover to the Lord's Supper, from manna to Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life, from water to wine, from a land flowing with milk and honey, but with dietary restrictions in that land, to the feeding of the 5,000, to the home of Cornelius, where Jews and Gentiles sit down to the table together, God having declared all things to be clean. From the call of the psalmist who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
from the words of the prophet Isaiah, who says to the people, eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. To the invitation of Jesus that's printed on your front of your bulletins, Revelation 3, 20, you know it, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The invitation from Jesus is to dinner, is to come and to dine and to feast with him. The Bible is a full meal that is set before us. It is a table prepared in the presence of our enemies. In a difficult world, it is a table set in the wilderness, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Can the Lord prepare a table in the wilderness? Yes. Yes, he can. And it is to that table that we are called, summoned as his creatures. Over the course of this series, we'll consider the importance of food, food itself, We'll consider the metaphors, the analogies, the lessons, the warnings that are given with respect to food. And we will consider feasting and fasting and famine and ferial eating, ferial eating, common, everyday eating that takes place. Today, for us, this is simply uh, an appetizer for us, an hors d'oeuvre for us, an aperitif for that which is to come over the course of the summer. And today the lesson is this. Today the lesson is notwithstanding the objections of those who are speaking to and about Jesus, here's the lesson, food and drink are good gifts, lavishly given out of the largesse of the goodness of God and are to be enjoyed as such. Food and drink are good gifts. That food is good hardly needs to be proven. You hardly need me, I think, to explain that in some way from the Bible. But for clarity's sake, I think all we need to do is remember that food and the provision of food was created for man at the beginning and is spoken of by God himself before any mention or any fall of man took place. It was good. God created trees that were good for food, plants that were good for food. And Paul uh, picks up on this same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 4 is he's addressing those who would try to insist on some kind of super holiness in life by the practice of abstaining from all sorts of things. Like, you'll be a more holy person if you abstain, for example, from marriage. Or if you abstain from various types of food and certainly from too much food. And Paul rebukes that idea by saying simply and clearly this, everything created by God is good. And therefore eat uh, what the Lord sets before. So the goodness is clear here. But the second part of what I said, that it is lavishly given out of the largesse of the goodness of God. We can unpack that just a bit today. In terms of food being a gift, I, I guess I would just like to read a few verses that demonstrate that for us from Genesis, what we read earlier, Genesis 1:29, And God said, Behold, I have given you 
every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. I have given them to you. And then after the fall and after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, God speaks to Noah and family saying this, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. God is giving it to his people. In uh, Exodus chapter 16, Israel is in the wilderness having crossed the Red Sea at this point, but not finding food, not finding water, and God provides for them manna. And they initially don't know what it is, what is this stuff that's all over the ground, and Moses responds to them by saying, it is the bread God has given you. Jesus taught us to pray, and we prayed it together a few moments ago, give us this day our daily bread. Food and drink are gifts given to us out of the lavish goodness of God. Psalm 104, verses 27, 28, they're on the front of your bulletin. I think it's a good summary for us. These all look to you, that is all creatures, great and small. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, give, 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 they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Now, just so you know, that in the Hebrew, things isn't there. They're filled with good. When, when God opens his hands and gives to all of the little creatures and to us, we are, in fact, filled with good. That it is lavishly given out of God and his largesse and goodness is seen in its abundance, in its variety, in the capacity that we have to taste it and to appreciate it at a very basic level. All of us understand, all of us know, all of us recognize that we need food and drink for survival, for sustenance. They're necessary for us. But God has, and, and, and this I think is, is, is a critical point, God has gone beyond the necessary by giving to us the unnecessary. He gives us more than what we need, more than what is just enough to get you by. He goes into the realm of the unnecessary. God didn't simply create one type of fruit or one type of seed or one type of tree. He created many. The tree of life itself, as it's pictured for us in the book of Revelation, has 12 kinds of fruit. And we read Genesis chapter 1, and we read about the kinds of things that God has created, things that are needed. Genesis 2, uh, what is that, verse 7 or verse 9? Things that are needed, good for food, but things as well that are simply pleasant, things that are pleasant for sight, things that are delightful, things that are good, and things that are delicious. God gives variety. God gives things that are good and things that are better and things that are more and not just things that are enough. Let me give you three examples from Scripture. The wedding at Cana in Galilee, John chapter 2. It's good that Jesus turned water into wine. 
but those who are there at that feast are able to discern between poor wine and good wine. It's not just any old wine that will do. There's poor wine and there's good wine, the wine that Jesus has provided in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son re returns home. And when the prodigal returns home, the father does not go out to greet him and say, hey, you know what, it's really good to see you back. Listen, you look a mess. Would one of you guys run back and get a pair of work clothes to put on him? Because he looks just a mess right now. Uh, and let's get yesterday's bread. Looks like he could use some fattening up and let's take care of this. He doesn't say that at all. He says, go get the best robe. Not any old robe, go get the best robe, go get my ring, go get the sandals, and oh, by the way, go kill the fattened calf. Because it is time to celebrate. And when you wanna celebrate the goodness of God, you celebrate with the lavishness of what God has provided. Ruth is gleaning in the fields of Boaz. And to glean was to kind of go along the edges and where stuff wasn't picked, then you went for those particular things and you took those. Boaz notices her and Boaz at mealtime says, you know what, you come over here and you eat with me, with my people, with my workers. Don't just stay off on the side. And Boaz provides for her at that meal bread and wine in which she can dip the bread and roasted grain. And he sends her back into the field and he says to his men, listen, I know the custom of gleaning is for people to be only on the outskirts of the fields, but you let her come in to the, the rows themselves. And in addition to that, as you're moving along, as you're going along, you, you take some out of your harvest and just throw them behind you. Just, just drop them there. And when she goes home, she has not enough. She doesn't merely have that which is necessary for her and Naomi's sustenance. She has a largesse. She has an abundance. It is ridiculous the kindness and the goodness of God that is shown to her as it is shown to us as well, which brings us to our closing point today. If food and drink are good gifts lavishly given out of the largesse of the goodness of God, then we should enjoy them. We should enjoy them. Food is more than instrumental. It is more than fuel to keep us going. It is more than incidental, something that the scriptures just talk about every once in a while because, you know, everybody does it and you might as well talk about it some. Food and drink are more than utilitarian. Food is also delightful. The top of page three, the call to worship, Psalm 104 again. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. That's the necessity part. That's providing for what we need. And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. James Michener, uh, the author, wrote the book Chesapeake. And as you can imagine, having just spent a month uh, on the Chesapeake and uh, loving that place, it is near and dear to our hearts. And in the beginning of that book, Michener has one Indian who is from the Chesapeake region 
explaining to another Indian who is not from that region what the Creator did. And he writes this, when the Creator had finished populating the river with everything our village required, that is with all the necessities, pine trees for canoes, deer to feed us in the summer, geese and oysters for the winter, he saw that we were grateful and well disposed. And so in his grace, he created one more thing to stand as a token of his eternal concern. He made the crab, and he dropped them in our salty waters. I, I heard people recently saying, they're not from Maryland, um, but they were saying, no, listen, if you're going to eat crabs, you better eat a meal beforehand because you'll never get full eating crab, to which a Marylander just shakes the head and goes, A, you don't know how to pick very well. B, you don't understand that the whole purpose is to be there for about two hours eating something delicious. And you can fill up on bread and you can fill up on corn and you can fill up on potato salad and things like that. Food is part of how God would have us to enjoy this world and to celebrate the Lord through the work of Esther, through the work of Mordecai, delivered his people. And what did they do to celebrate? They didn't say, well, let's just eat bread and water. <laughs> let's just keep it as simple as we possibly can because this is really about the Lord. It's not about us, after all. That's not what they said. They said, let's have a feast. And the way you celebrated that feast, in addition to the things that you ate, were you gave gifts of food to one another. That's how you celebrate. Armarambauer wrote, Joy of Cooking. Julia Child concluded the first introduction of mastering the art of French cooking with these words, above all, have a good time. Have a good time as you do it. Wendell Berry wrote an essay called The Pleasures of Eating. So we were down in Cambridge, and Lauren was making coco vin. Really nice. This afternoon, she was there. I was fishing. It was a fairly unsuccessful month of fishing. It was a little bit early in this region uh, for where the fish were. But lo and behold, I caught a rockfish. Striped bass, stripers, something you call them up here. We call them rockfish in Maryland. Anyway. It was a really big one. It was the biggest one I had ever caught off of a pier before. It was like 23, 24 inches long, um, a big fish. And I brought it into the kitchen. And I said, "Honey, what are we having for dinner tonight? And, uh, and I'm holding the fish in my hands. And she goes, well, I guess the coco vine will keep. Um, and the coco vine kept well to the next day. I filleted the rockfish. We ate the fish that night. It's more than we needed. It's super abundance. It's far more than what was necessary for us to have, and God gives out of his kindness and out of his lavishness. Now, perhaps some of you are here, and you're kind of wondering, you know, I really wonder if our pastor has lost it over the course of uh, this, uh, this summer, because I'm not sure how reformed this is or how serious all of this is. So in order to kind of provide some credentials for this, I'm going to read you from John Calvin and the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Because I figure if I can do that and I can make this point that then I'm pretty, I'm pretty in square. Now, if we ponder to what end God created food, we shall find that he meant not only to provide for necessity, but also for 
delight and good cheer. Thus, the purpose of clothing, apart from necessity, was comeliness and decency. In grasses, trees, and fruits, apart from their various uses, there is beauty of appearance and pleasantness of odor. And he's quoting Genesis 2.9 there, or he's citing Genesis 2.9. For if this were not true, the prophet would not have reckoned them among the benefits of God, the prophet being the author of Psalm 104, quote, that wine gladdens the heart of man, that oil makes his face shine. Scripture would not have reminded us repeatedly in commending his kindness that he gave all such things to men. And the natural qualities themselves of things demonstrate sufficiently to what end and extent we may enjoy them. Has the Lord clothed the flowers with great beauty that greets our eyes, the sweetness of smell that is wafted upon our nostrils, and yet will it be unlawful for our eyes to be affected by that beauty or our sense of smell by the sweetness of that odor? Quote, what? Did he not so distinguish colors as to make some more lovely than others? What? Did he not endow gold and silver and ivory and marble with a loveliness that renders them more precious than other metals or stones? Did he not, in short, render many things attractive to us apart from their necessary use? Away then with that inhuman philosophy which, while conceding only a necessary use of creatures, not only malignantly deprives us of the lawful fruit of God's beneficence, but cannot be practiced unless it robs a man of all his senses and degrades him to a block. Real women and real men eat real good food and drink real good things because we're not blocks. We're created after the image of God and God made it like this. And more than God making it, the world like this, God made us like this with the capacity to enjoy it. Now, this of course is not all there is to say about food, but it seems to me that it is a good place to begin, of course, with respect to food, things get kind of dicey in Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, so we'll go into some of that side of it uh, next week. Food and drink are good gifts, lavishly giving out of the largesse of the goodness of God and are to be enjoyed as such. Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking. And he promised this. To those who stayed with him through trials, he promised them a kingdom in which... You may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. That's the promise. That's the promise from the Lord. Stick with me in the trials of this world and in my kingdom. We'll eat and drink together at my table. May that day come. And in the meantime, may the Lord give us our daily bread beforehand. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for providing for us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the food that you give to us day by day. We pray that you would help us to be mindful, to be attentive, to be aware, to be thankful for the way that you have created us, for the way that you have created this world, 
in which we can enjoy you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.